Let me pray. Lord, it's your word. We want to hear it. Still in us, any voice but your own. May the thoughts we think follow after yours. May the hearts that we give be given to you alone. Amen. You're walking your way through the book of Exodus. I saw the um, full scheme. Um, After a couple more chapters, the pace of chapters pick up because the last third of the book is about the building of the tabernacle. It'll test your patience. In the book of Genesis, I believe that God was teaching human beings how to be human. We didn't know, and we did a very, very bad job of it at the very beginning. First 11 chapters are every failed project that you could imagine we attempted and from which God needed to rescue us and set us out again, only to fail again. Then in selecting Abraham, teaching Abraham and Sarah how to be father and mother and husband and wife and uh, the beginnings of family, um, which means the beginnings of how we can be fully human. But in Exodus now, we've changed our focus. God will teach us how to be God's people, how to be a nation. So we're learning how to be human in Genesis, doing a poor job of it. And we're learning how to be a nation in Exodus, doing a poor job of it. God gives us the most perfect ruler we're going to get until Jesus himself comes. And all we can do is bellyache about the boy. Who is he? Who set him up? Well, that's kind of the point. God did. But we'll look past that. We're going to be dependent on God for every food that we eat, manna and quail. We're going to be dependent on God everywhere we go for water. This is a desert after all, Marah and Rephidim. And if you want to refer to the notes, this will help you to kind of keep pace with this. But these are also uh, including indictments of us, of how dependent we are on God and how unhappy we are about it. What, better than work all day and still not survive in a desert? Most people don't. God gives us food and you figure out a way to complain about it? What are we, teenagers? (laughs) At best, God gives us water and we can provoke Moses to anger in the process of it. We'll complain about its taste. It keeps us alive. What are we, children, and the medicine doesn't taste right, so we won't take it? God wins a great victory over the Amalekites. All this in chapter 19. And Moses raises up his hand and Joshua picks up his sword. Malachites are more than we are. They're more fierce than we are. It's a home. They have home court advantage. We're just passing through. We've never fought a war. We were slaves in Egypt. We didn't defeat that army. God did that while we were still getting to shore. And we win. God wins this for us. And we're still going to worry about whether or not God's going to provide. 
trust will come slowly. It is the thing apparently that God wants most, that we would trust God with us. I'm willing to say in my testimony that perhaps the most significant turning around childhood experiences and teenage growth was as a young pastor, I learned the lesson that God was better at me than me. Uh, which is a disappointing lesson, by the way. And one I'm more than glad on almost every occasion to take back if I possibly can. But that realization as a young pastor has helped me. It's, it's, it's a, a foundation on which trust grows, which is apparently what he wants. Because in my trusting, there's some, eh, some humility, some humbleness that acknowledges that I'm not, well, I'm not God. And that God is. And then after comes the realization, this God is for me, indeed is my God. We will learn that and those will be the first opening words to the words of chapter 20, which is our passage in front of us. But we've been learning these things. I make a comparison in the notes to the Mayflower <laughs> Compact of 1620. You can find it on you can Google it and find it. You can read it. You might be disappointed. I am not. This is a bunch of pilgrims, near Puritans, if you will. This is a lay sermon. Winthrop preaches it. He's not a, pa not a preacher. Uh, well, he's quite a preacher, but he's not a pastor. Uh, and the lay sermon is 80%, 75%. This is how we're going to treat one another when we get there. These are the terms under which we lend money and forgive what we've lent. These are the terms by which we help those who are poor. Good grief, there's only 120 of them on the boat. Like, can't you just do this out of just kind of common humanity, good neighborly feeling? We are, after all, kind of all under our Christian auspices here. Don't we already kind of know it's just good to be good? And love your neighbor is, is the great commandment after loving God, don't we? Do we, have, do we have to have this spelled out? Well, yes, apparently. This is how we will live together. And then at the end, because when we do this, we will be like a city set on a hill and the whole world will see us. And we love to say, our politicians especially love to see this. By the way, before World War II, nobody was quoting that. After World War II, it became... Um, common. Uh, 300 years after the giving of the sermon, it became common in American politics to talk about we're a city set on a hill. Because it was known, that was a threat. Because if we fail, is the idea, the whole world will see us and they will watch our failure. We will be like them. A city set on a hill, a holy people, it says in chapter 19. A kingdom of priests. You read the rest of the Old Testament, it strikes you that that's what this is? This is what holiness looks like? This is what a kingdom of everyone's a priest? This is what it looks like? So the challenge in this for us, as it was for those who in that generation founded that part of what would become our country, was a sense of, the commandments of God are the commandments of God for us. 
if we live this way with one another, we will live. If we do not live this way with one another, we won't live at all. When we start chapter 19, the language changes, the scene changes. You know, the Bible is a lot about where, where you are. That's why you go on Holy Land trips. Actually, I haven't asked Jack lately. There was one scheduled for soon, and then it got canceled because um, of all the, the great unhappiness there. And I don't know if it's been rescheduled or not. But there's a reason to go because you can see these places. You can go to Mount Sinai. There's no good reason to go there, by the way, except that it's Mount Sinai. It's in the middle of a desert. There is a magnificent monastery there. And one of the three oldest and most valuable manuscripts of the whole Bible is there, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's called Codex Sinaiticus, if you want. It's the book from Sinai. You can go there. It's one of the places where we're pretty sure this is what it purports to be. This is Mount Sinai. Mountains don't actually go to the other side of the peninsula later on. And there's always been this long tradition of this was the place. So we trust it to be the place. There's not another, not a lot of places like it to mistake it for. And we've just come there in chapter 19. We've just entered the desert at Sinai. We're now at the foot of the mountain. And to also indicate that everything's changing now in this scene, the language changes. Hebrew prose is pretty simple. It's almost conversational. It has a very limited vocabulary. Its sentences are not long, nor are they complex. Um, Studying Hebrew is easier than studying Greek, with the exception that it's very foreign. As it turns out, it's a foreign language, and they grade you on it in graduate school. Moses went here and heard this. The Lord said to him, and Moses went and did it. The people heard him say, and they said, we will. Those are the sentences of Hebrew. Those are the sentences of chapter 19, except that it's beginning. It breaks out into poetry in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. That's a sentence. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. If you read the Psalms, you picked up on the nature of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. It's a repetition with a, a loveliness about it, if you will. Preciseness sometimes, but a loveliness. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Did I really need to hear that twice? I mean, I caught the metaphor the first time. I'm not slow on the uptake. It's a light to my feet. Well, and it's a light to my path. Lamp and light's not the same word. Feet and path's not the same word. Now I've heard it twice, a little bit different perspective. It's just gone in a little bit more deeply, the way that poetry can beyond the reaches of prose. That's this, God is speaking poetically to Moses. Say to the descendants of the house of Jacob, it's the only time in the Bible this has been used, that you're the house of Jacob. Tell to the people of Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You saw what I did to them. You saw what I've done for you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, some of the elders of the people, set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak, and they responded, I love this response, we will do everything the Lord has said. He hasn't asked them to do anything. But there are yes. Sometimes, as stiff-necked as they are, and as unattractive as we think they are, they actually try to be charming sometimes. You know what charming is? charm is? The ability to secure the yes before you ask the question. It doesn't matter what God wants from us. We're so ready. I think you're supposed to suspect by now that ain't so. We will learn that it ain't so as we read further. But yet they agree to do everything that's been said, but nothing's been said. But here's what God has said. A kingdom of priests. A king is a profane thing in the Bible. The Bible is not impressed with kings. They're secular. First one you come across is Pharaoh. Um, and, and Pharaoh is nothing but a cautionary tale in the Bible. Don't, don't spend time with this. Don't become one of these things. Don't ever be under the influence of one of these things. Don't let your kids grow up to be one of these things. But this nation is to be a kingdom of priests. No king is mentioned. Hmm. Because it doesn't have one or simply because the king has not yet been named. Everyone's a priest within the nation. That means everyone has access to God, makes sacrifice and honors the covenant. Now it might strike you when you read Leviticus, if you guys are going through the Bible, which at this pace, I won't be here to help with the New Testament lessons. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be long, long dead. Uh, it gives the appearance in Leviticus that it's just it's a it's a very uh, select group that does things. The point is everyone is a priest in this nation, making sacrifices, bringing their sacrifices to an organized part of the nation that helps them complete their sacrifices. So me and my family we show up at the tabernacle. The priest helps us complete our sacrifices, but we're making them. This is not their ox or their lamb. It's my lamb that I brought on behalf of my family. We're a kingdom of priests. There's been very, very few sacrifices solicited by God so far in Genesis and Exodus. If you want to reread or read with this in mind, how many of these sacrifices that people offered did God ask for? He didn't actually ask for Cain and Abel's. It brought them nothing but trouble. He didn't ask for Noah's. Brought him trouble. Abraham has some troubles and some blessing because of his. Jacob actually offers them only because he's always in trouble. Book of Leviticus, it's going to be, yes, you're always in trouble, and here's what you're supposed to do about it, the things that you can do. But now it's a nation where everybody, the sacrificing priests rule. Here's another way that it's a kingdom of priests. The one nation is to become a priest to the other nations whose access to God is not as direct. Indeed, will be mediated by Israel. A priest to the nations by showing them and living the good and godly life. Do these things, Ten Commandments, if you will. Let the world see, marvel, and learn. 
and God extending grace to the whole world because of Israel, which is the original promise to Abraham. I will bless you to be a blessing. That's not the second sentence. I will bless you for this purpose. We forget that purpose. Blessing runs a bit thin. Yeah. Um, a holy nation. Holy it means here it's just separated out, uh, differentiated. You will be my treasured possession. Separated out from the nations, not like the others. You're never to be Egyptian or Canaanite. Uh, and, um, and then by the time you get to the book of the Revelation, you're not to be Babylon, which is probably how this started in early Genesis. You're not to be Babylon. That's how they do things. This is how the world lives, not you. You don't take your cues from where you come from or the land that you're going to. They're separated out and to and, uh, and out to and from for the sake of these others. My goodness, for the sake of Egyptians and Canaanites. The vertical is, is prior to the horizontal, that is the loving God, uh, comes before love of neighbor, but it's necessarily next and they're connected. Jesus will affirm this. The word holy here is used strongly. It's only been, hasn't been used in Genesis at all. Uh, Genesis is a, a book about creation, God making all things, differentiating everything from everything. In Exodus, he's pulling one thing out, differentiated it from all the rest. That's an act of sanctifying, of making holy. Um, and no one is holy yet. Now, the first time someone is holy, the whole nation is holy. That's a work of election. We, uh, the Reformed, Calvinists, if you're okay with the phrase, I'm very okay with the phrase. This is a work of election. Abraham's not everybody. He's one family out of all the other families. Israel's not all the nations. They're one nation out of all the nations for the sake of all the families, for the sake of all the nations, one people for the sake of all the peoples. Though the whole world belongs to the Lord in creation, it is not called holy. That's a work of election. Less than the whole is made holy for the sake of the whole world. How does one do this? One covenants. Let me pray. Lord, it's your word. We want to hear it. Still in us, any voice but your own. May the thoughts we think follow after yours. And may the hearts that we give be given to you alone. Amen. You're walking your way through the book of Exodus. I saw the um, full scheme. Um, after a couple more chapters, the pace of chapters pick up because the last third of the book is about the building of the tabernacle. It'll test your patience. In the book of Genesis, I believe that God was teaching human beings how to be human. We didn't know, and we did a very, very bad job of it at the very beginning. First 11 chapters are every failed project that you could imagine we attempted and from which God needed to rescue us and set us out again, only to fail again. Then in selecting Abraham, teaching Abraham and Sarah how to be father and mother and husband and wife, and uh, the beginnings of family, um, which means the beginnings of 
how we can be fully human. But in Exodus now, we've changed our focus. God will teach us how to be God's people, how to be a nation. So we're learning how to be human in Genesis, doing a poor job of it. And we're learning how to be a nation in Exodus, doing a poor job of it. God gives us the most perfect ruler we're going to get until Jesus himself comes. And all we can do is bellyache about the boy. Who is he? Who set him up? Well, that's kind of the point. God did. But we'll look past that. We're going to be dependent on God for every food that we eat, manna and quail. We're going to be dependent on God everywhere we go for water. This is a desert after all. Marah and Rephidim. And if you want to refer to the notes, this will help you to kind of keep pace with this. But these are also uh, including indictments of us, of how dependent we are on God and how unhappy we are about it. What, better than work all day and still not survive in a desert? Most people don't. God gives us food and you figure out a way to complain about it? What are we, teenagers? <laughs> At best, God gives us water and we can provoke Moses to anger in the process of it. We'll complain about its taste. It keeps us alive. What are we, children? And the medicine doesn't taste right, so he won't take it? God wins a great victory over the Amalekites. All this in chapter 19. And Moses raises up his hand and Joshua picks up his sword. Malachites are more than we are. They're more fierce than we are. It's a home. They have home court advantage. We're just passing through. We've never fought a war. We were slaves in Egypt. We didn't defeat that army. God did that while we were still getting to shore. And we win. God wins this for us. And we're still going to worry about whether or not God's going to provide. Trust will come slowly. It is the thing apparently that God wants most, that we would trust God with us. I'm willing to say in my testimony that perhaps the most significant turning around childhood experiences and teenage. Let me pray. Lord, it's your word. We want to hear it. Still in us, any voice but your own. May the thoughts we think follow after yours. May the hearts that we give be given to you alone. Amen. You're walking your way through the book of Exodus. I saw the um, full scheme. Um, after a couple more chapters, the pace of chapters pick up because the last third of the book is about the building of the tabernacle. It'll test your patience. In the book of Genesis, I believe that God was teaching human beings how to be human. We didn't know, and we did a very, very bad job of it at the very beginning. 
First 11 chapters are every failed project that you could imagine we attempted and from which God needed to rescue us and set us out again, only to fail again. Then in selecting Abraham, teaching Abraham and Sarah how to be father and mother and husband and wife and uh, the beginnings of family, um, which means the beginnings of how we can be fully human. But in Exodus now, we've changed our focus. God will teach us how to be God's people, how to be a nation. So we're learning how to be human in Genesis, doing a poor job of it. And we're learning how to be a nation in Exodus, doing a poor job of it. God gives us the most perfect ruler we're going to get until Jesus himself comes. And all we can do is bellyache about the boy. Who is he? Who set him up? Well, that's kind of the point. God did. But we'll look past that. We're going to be dependent on God for every food that we eat, manna and quail. We're going to be dependent on God everywhere we go for water. This is a desert after all. Marah and Rephidim. And if you want to refer to the notes, this will help you to kind of keep pace with this. But these are also uh, including indictments of us, of how dependent we are on God and how unhappy we are about it. What, better than work all day and still not survive in a desert? Most people don't. God gives us food and you figure out a way to complain about it? What are we, teenagers? <laughs> At best, God gives us water and we can provoke Moses to anger in the process of it. We'll complain about its taste. It keeps us alive. What are we, children and the medicine doesn't taste right so he won't take it? God wins a great victory over the Amalekites. All this in chapter 19. And Moses raises up his hand and Joshua picks up his sword. Malachites are more than we are. They're more fierce than we are. It's a home. They have home court advantage. We're just passing through. We've never fought a war. We were slaves in Egypt. We didn't defeat that army. God did that while we were still getting to shore. And we win. God wins this for us. And we're still going to worry about whether or not God's going to provide. Trust will come slowly. It is the thing apparently that God wants most, that we would trust God with us. I'm willing to say in my testimony that perhaps the most significant turning around childhood experiences and teenage growth was as a young pastor, I learned the lesson that God was better at me than me. Uh, which is a disappointing lesson, by the way. And one I'm more than glad on almost every occasion to take back if I possibly can. But that realization as a young pastor has helped me. It's, it's, it's a, a foundation on which trust grows, which is apparently what he wants. Because in my trusting, there's some, eh, some, 
humility, some humbleness that acknowledges that I'm not, well, I'm not God. And that God is. And then after comes the realization, this God is for me, indeed is my God. We will learn that and those will be the first opening words to the words of chapter 20, which is our passage in front of us. But we've been learning these things. I make a comparison in the notes to the Mayflower Compact of 1620. You can find it on, you can Google it and find it. You can read it. You might be disappointed. I am not. This is a bunch of pilgrims, near Puritans, if you will. This is a lay sermon. Winthrop preaches it. He's not a, pa- not a preacher. Uh, well, he's quite a preacher, but he's not a pastor. Uh, and the lay sermon is 80%, 75%. This is how we're going to treat one another when we get there. These are the terms under which we lend money and forgive what we've lent. These are the terms by which we help those who are poor. Good grief, there's only 120 of them on the boat. Like, can't you just do this out of just kind of common humanity, good neighborly feeling? We are, after all, kind of all under our Christian auspices here. Don't we already kind of know it's just good to be good and love your neighbor is is the great commandment after loving God, don't we? Do we we have to have this spelled out? Well, yes, apparently. This is how we will live together. And then at the end, because when we do this, we will be like a city set on a hill and the whole world will see us. And we love to say, our politicians especially love to see this. By the way, before World War II, nobody was quoting that. After World War II, it became um, common. Uh, 300 years after the giving of the sermon, it became common in American politics to talk about where a city set on a hill. Because it was known, that was a threat. Because if we fail, is the idea. The whole world will see us and they will watch our failure we will be like them. A city set on a hill, a holy people, it says in chapter 19. A kingdom of priests. You read the rest of the Old Testament, it strikes you that that's what this is? This is what holiness looks like? This is what a kingdom of everyone's a priest? This is what it looks like? So the challenge in this for us, as it was for those who, and that generation founded that part of what would become our country was a sense of the commandments of God are the commandments of God for us. If we live this way with one another, we will live. If we do not live this way with one another, we won't live at all. When we start chapter 19, the language changes, the scene changes. You know, the Bible is a lot about where where you are. That's why you go on Holy Land trips. Actually, I haven't asked Jack lately. There was one scheduled for soon, and then it got canceled um, because of all the the great unhappiness there. And I don't know if it's been rescheduled or not. But there's a reason to go, because you can see these places. You can go to Mount Sinai. There's, There's no good reason to go there, by the way, except that it's Mount Sinai. It's in the middle of a desert. There is a magnificent monastery there. And one of the three oldest and 
most valuable manuscripts of the whole Bible is there, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's called Codex Sinaiticus, if you want. It's the book from Sinai. You can go there. It's one of the places where we're pretty sure this is what it purports to be. This is Mount Sinai. Mountains don't actually go to the other side of the peninsula later on, and there's always been this long tradition of this was the place, so we trust it to be the place. There's not another, not a lot of places like it to mistake it for. And we've just come there in chapter 19. We've just entered the desert at Sinai. We're now at the foot of the mountain. And to also indicate that everything's changing now in this scene, the language changes. Hebrew prose is pretty simple. It's almost conversational. It has a very limited vocabulary. Sentences are not long, nor are they complex. Um, Studying Hebrew is easier than studying Greek, with the exception that it's very foreign. As it turns out, it's a foreign language, and they grade you on it in graduate school. Moses went here and heard this. The Lord said to him, and Moses went and did it. The people heard him say, and they said, we will. Those are the sentences of Hebrew. Those are the sentences of chapter 19, except at its beginning. It breaks out into poetry in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. That's a sentence. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. If you read the Psalms, you picked up on the nature of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. It's a repetition with a a loveliness about it, if you will. Preciseness sometimes, but a loveliness. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Did I really need to hear that twice? I mean, I caught the metaphor the first time. I'm not slow on the uptake. It's a light to my feet. Well, and it's a light to my path. Lamp and light's not the same word. Feet and path's not the same word. Now I've heard it twice, a little bit different perspective. It's just gone in a little bit more deeply, the way that poetry can beyond the reaches of prose. That's this. God is speaking poetically to Moses. Say to the descendants of the house of Jacob, it's the only time in the Bible this has been used, that you're the house of Jacob. Tell to the people of Israel, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You saw what I did to them. You saw what I've done for you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, some of the elders of the people set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And they responded, I love this response. We will do everything the Lord has said. He hasn't asked them to do anything. But there are yes. Sometimes, as stiff-necked as they are, and as unattractive as we think they are, they actually try to be charming sometimes. You know what charming is? Charm is the ability to secure the yes before you ask the question. It doesn't matter what God wants from us. We're so ready. I think you're supposed to suspect by now that ain't so. We will learn that it ain't so as we read further. 
but yet they agree to do everything that's been said, but nothing's been said. But here's what God has said. A kingdom of priests. A king is a profane thing in the Bible. The Bible is not impressed with kings. They're secular. First one you come across is Pharaoh. Um, and, and Pharaoh's nothing but a cautionary tale in the Bible. Don't, don't spend time with this. Don't become one of these things. Don't ever be under the influence of one of these things. Don't let your kids grow up to be one of these things. But this nation is to be a kingdom of priests. No king is mentioned. Hmm. Because it doesn't have one or simply because the king has not yet been named. Everyone's a priest within the nation. That means everyone has access to God, makes sacrifice, and honors the covenant. Now, it might strike you when you read Leviticus, if you guys are going through the Bible, which at this pace, I won't be here to help with the New Testament lessons. I'll, I'll be, I'll be long, long dead. Uh, it gives the appearance in Leviticus that it's, just, it's, a, it's a very uh, select group that does things. The point is, everyone is a priest in this nation making sacrifices, bringing their sacrifices to an organized part of the nation that helps them complete their sacrifices. So me and my family, we show up at the tabernacle. The priest helps us complete our sacrifices, but we're making them. This is not their ox or their lamb. It's my lamb that I brought on behalf of my family. We're a kingdom of priests. There's been very, very few sacrifices solicited by God so far in Genesis and Exodus. If you want to reread or read with this in mind, how many of these sacrifices that people offered did God ask for? He didn't actually ask for Cain and Abel's. It brought them nothing but trouble. He didn't ask for Noah's. It brought him trouble. Abraham has some troubles and some blessing because of his. Jacob actually offers them only because he's always in trouble. Book of Leviticus, it's going to be, yes, you're always in trouble, and here's what you're supposed to do about it, the things that you can do. But now it's a nation where everybody, the sacrificing priests rule. Here's another way that it's a kingdom of priests. The one nation is to become a priest to the other nations whose access to God is not as direct, indeed will be mediated by Israel. A priest to the nations by showing them and living the good and godly life. Do these things, Ten Commandments, if you will. Let the world see, marvel, and learn. And God extending grace to the whole world because of Israel, which is the original promise to Abraham. I will bless you to be a blessing. That's not the second sentence. I will bless you for this purpose. We forget that purpose. Blessing runs a bit thin. Yeah. Um, a holy nation. Holy means here just separated out, uh, differentiated. You will be my treasured possession. Separated out from the nations, not like the others. You're never to be Egyptian or Canaanite. Uh, and, um, and then by the time you get to the book of the Revelation, you're not to be Babylon, which is probably how this started in early Genesis. You're not to be Babylon. 
That's how they do things. This is how the world lives. Not you. You don't take your cues from where you come from or the land that you're going to. They're separated out and to and, uh, and out to and from for the sake of these others. My goodness, for the sake of Egyptians and Canaanites. The vertical is, is prior to the horizontal, that is the loving God, uh, comes before love of neighbor, but it's necessarily next and they're connected. Jesus will affirm this. The word holy here is used strongly. It's only been it hasn't been used in Genesis at all. Uh, Genesis is a, a book about creation, God making all things, differentiating everything from everything. In Exodus, he's pulling one thing out, differentiated it from all the rest. That's an act of sanctifying, of making holy. Um, and no one is holy yet. Now, the first time someone is holy, the whole nation is holy. That's a work of election. We, uh, the Reformed, Calvinists, if you're okay with the phrase, I'm very okay with the phrase. This is a work of election. Abraham's not everybody. He's one family out of all the other families. Israel's not all the nations. They're one nation out of all the nations for the sake of all the families, for the sake of all the nations, one people for the sake of all the peoples. Though the whole world belongs to the Lord in creation, it is not called holy. That's a work of election. Less than the whole is made holy for the sake of the whole world. How does one do this? One covenants with the part that one pulls out only to send back in. So the covenanting process, which is what's happening here, we're covenanting at the mountain, Mount Sinai. Covenanting is as decisive as the contents of the covenant. That they agree, we will do, has an importance. We don't have time to tell the stories. Um, I won't tell mine because my wife's not here to offer the rebuttal. Uh, but I said yes, and I do, before all the content was filled out. Like I didn't have a clue. I thought the two of us would live in some sort of apartment. The only furniture would be my books. What, what else does one need? Old people need things to sit on. We wouldn't. And we would listen to Motown. I grew up in Detroit. We'd be listening to music all evening. And if that's not marriage, I don't know what is. <laughs> Lois had different ideas about what marriage is. I thought it was all face to face. She thought it was all shoulder to shoulder. Us against the world. Let's go at it. It's like, no, how about just the us part? You know, I got another album we could listen to tonight. No, we didn't finish the day's work and it's like, you know, you do sound a lot like my mother, but the next time I say that, I know you're going to shoot me, so I'm not going to say it out loud. <laughs> so apparently it's not just you, it's half of the world's population thinks that marriages are to be productive. Um, but the covenanting is important, yes? So now people is being formed or reformed. Uh, the word here is the Hebrew am, which simply means people, among the plural, the peoples. A people among the peoples. We are not a people because you and I hang out together. 
because we agree on things and like to do things together. We're not a people until we're in covenant with God. Then we become a people. So God speaks a word to them. We're finally at chapter 20, our passage. And God gives a word, 10 words exactly. These are not called commandments. It's okay to call them commandments. Um, much is commanded here. Much is required and much is prohibited. But they're not called commandments. They're called words. And the word used for word is the simple word, word. You know how that works. I've just said, I don't know, 3,000 words. Jack, last week, did he preach on Sunday? Jack preached the word. You understand what I mean when I say the singular? He preached the word. And I can refer to the scripture as the word, rightly so. And Jesus is the word, capital W, if you will, and exactly so. Here's a word, no other. Here's another word, no image. So chapter 20 begins, and God spoke all these words, not commandments. I am the Lord your God. I think that's the bold headline of who I am and who I am to you. I am the Lord, your God. What I have done for you, brought you up out of Egypt, which means I went there and fetched you myself. Do you know that in the book of Leviticus, the Hebrew where there's a word for liberation, setting free, it's spoken, I think, three times. That's not primarily how the Exodus event is described as a setting free. It's a rescue. Someone went in, gathered what was his own, and took it back. We like the language of freedom, and rightly so. We like the language of liberation, and rightly so. We love the language of human rights, and rightly so. But that is not the language of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the language of rescue and redemption, which is very personal. You're mine. Somebody, flimsy Pharaoh, thought for a long time you were his. Well, actually, there ain't even a him anymore. You've been set free. If I get a title on what I am besides a pastor, I think I'm a, a classicist, ancient, my PhDs in Greek and Latin, things ancient. I can tell you the use of the definite article by Plato in his middle period. No one has ever asked me that question and I'm, I'm thoroughly disappointed. So if you could think up something about the classical world and especially its linguistics, I'd be happy. But there's a, there's an emperor. That's not a class. That's a singular thing. Then there's a, a senatorial class, then there's an equine class, the knights, if you will. Then there's a decurion class, which is the local city administrations. There are free people. Then there are freed people, former slaves, no longer slaves. And then there are slaves. Free and freed are not the same thing. Everyone knows the difference, the liability to law, the liability to what kind of punishments, the things you may and may not do, are who and who you can't marry and all sorts of things depend on status of free and freed. 
in that, though that's a very Roman, somewhat Greek, but, but Roman taxonomy, in Hebrews, it sticks. These are not a free people. These are a freed people. I went into Egypt and brought you up out of slavery. When God wants to impress on them their duty to their neighbor, to the alien, to the stranger in their midst, to the immigrant, to the poor person, to the person who has not, God says simply, that was you. Not, they're different than you. Let's bridge the gap. It's a different message for another time, and that's good, and you can find that in the Bible. The message of Exodus, because of Exodus, will be, that's you. That's what you were. A lot of Egypt's out there. Pharaohs keep reproducing. Your job is to go get, fetch them out. I did it for you. Huh? So to this freed people, first word, you shall have no other gods before me. The sentence almost doesn't come to an end. It just, boom, it's that, uh, shall have no other gods usually before me or beside me. Maybe beside lets you just see a little bit more what they're thinking of. In a, in a society in which idols can become very literal, things that you make with your hand, Isaiah will... Um, Isaiah will simply make fun of it. The woodsman goes out to the woods, chops down a tree, takes out a big hunk of it, and spends his evenings carving it into the shape of something in the sky or something on the earth or something below the earth. He's, he's uh, quoting the, 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 the second commandment here when he does that. Then he'll take this thing that he's made. He'll put it on the fireplace mantle. He'll call his whole family around. and He'll say, see this? This is the God who made us. The guy just finished making it. Like, how off can you be? There's not even a mystery that you can make up about this thing. You chopped down the tree this morning. You don't have one of those things next to where I am. You're not to lift up anything here to me. There's two things out there. God and everything else. Not a gradations of things more and less distant, more and less alike. There is God, everything else. There is creator and what has been created. No middling things that ascend. You can't bring anything up to his level. No other gods before me. Secondly, second word. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And then there's a lot of words after that, but let me, let me uh, tackle that. For me. So if we're not to lift anything up to God, we're not to lower God down to anything else. Like a lion that roars. Can slide into is a lion that roars. No, a lion is something God made. Just did it. Adam named it. 
Um, yeah, I know a way that I can offend half of you with a joke. Let me try it. <laughs> God says to Adam, um, here's everything else that I've made that is a living, breathing thing. I want you to name them all. So something walks across the stage and Adam goes, hippopotamus. And, and God says, that's great. That's Latin for water horse. I love Latin. I love Latin. Uh, great name. Another one goes by and he says, armadillo. God says, you're right. I didn't know what to do with that one either, but that, that'll do. So the whole day goes on. Now it's the end of the day and something walks across and Adam kind of lights up a little bit and he goes, dog. God says, yes, that's my favorite. It's my name spelled backwards. I just love that one. Okay. Adam starts to get up and to walk away, and the angel says, well, no, Adam, there's still one more thing. There is? Yeah. Something else walks by. Adam goes, I don't know. I don't know. Cat. And God says, I didn't make that thing. <laughs> the difference between, I've offended half of you. The difference between a dog and a cat is if you're good to a dog, and the dog says, you're so good to me, you must be a god. You're good to a cat, and the cat says to himself, you're so good to me, no wonder, I'm a god. <laughs> so, don't bring anything up to God, don't bring God down to anything else. This division, and it's literal in this passage. God is not on the top of the mountain, and Moses ascends to him. A couple of sentences kind of suggest if they were left alone, you could, you could imagine that. But the other couple of sentences are very clear. You come up here, I'll descend to there. The top of Mount Sinai is not where God abides. It's where he meets. Moses goes up to that place. Can't get higher than top of mountain. God's coming down to that place. Not that God can't go lower. He went into Egypt to get them. Remember, Egypt is always down. You, go down, you don't go up to Egypt, you go down into Egypt. God went into Egypt, but this is where they, they will meet. And maybe the most unnecessary commandments in the Bible, I almost wonder why it's there. The top of the mountain is shaking. It's, it, you know, if we were there, maybe we would describe a volcano. There's lightning, there is thunder, there is sounds that they can't describe except by comparing them to other sounds, trumpet blasts, which were the loudest things that they had ever heard. The, 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 the mountain itself shakes, it trembles. It's an earthquake. This whole thing is happening, is, is lava spewing forth. The, the whole thing is bubbling over. It's a cauldron. It's all this. And God says to Moses, tell them not to come up. I can keep that commandment. I was thinking about maybe just because the position of the tribes right now, mine's a little bit too close. So we, we, could, we, we could immigrate to Issachar and we could be three miles away from here. And... Um, uh, Israel does about everything possibly wrong that you can when Moses comes down with them. They actually manage, whether Jack or Jan's teaching them, they challenge them to, to find out how it is that they are breaking all 10 of the commandments simultaneously. I can break a commandment just by casualness, just not thinking, I'm sure I do daily. But to break all 10 at the same time, I'd have to have a plan. Uh, but they keep this one. The separation 
God has made so graphic. You can't possibly want to be here right now. You can't possibly want to be on that side of the line. You won't survive it. This distance protects you. Protects you from me. This won't be, but will be magnificently reversed with the incarnation of Christ. Touch the hem of this garment and be healed. John will say, we saw him, we touched him. We're not at the foot of the mountain and the volcano's on top. He was right here and we touched him. This is relationship, it's relationship, it's covenant at a distance. That will become salvation by proximity. He dwelt among us. He came down to the foot of Mount Sinai and pitched his tent here. That's a different story. In this story, they need to know the distancy. Let me tell you how I teach this. I'm sure you could do better. Uh, I'm jealous to teach the confirmation classes in my churches. There are so many other more beautiful and Christ-like ways of saying this, but I'll say it the way it goes to my mind. I wouldn't trust this to a youth director. Um, I'm going to teach confirmation class. What's a 25-year-old know anyway? Oh, forget the fact that I was a senior pastor when I was 25. And I tried to demonstrate to my congregation of farmers, the average age of whom was 125, that I actually 